Good job, though. I like that song. It's a toe tapper, and I enjoy that. Well, it's good to see everybody tonight, and I uh, hope you're here because you enjoy the subject that we're on. It's a very, very important one in Scripture. So if you'd open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, our subject this evening is one of the most important topics. Uh, The first doctrine that you need to know to understand God and to understand the Bible is the doctrine of faith. Trust in and reliance upon Jesus as your Savior, that is the most important part of Scripture. We're saved by faith. We're justified by faith. The Scripture says that faith is the evidence of uh, things that we can't see. And so there is no doctrine that's important in the Bible as faith. But close behind that is another doctrine that many people might be surprised to learn. is the second most talked about subject in Scripture, and that is the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Bible is filled with references to it. Uh, We find the first reference in Genesis 3.15, and and then over and over and over again it's mentioned in Scripture until you start adding all of that up, and there are almost 1,900 references to the second coming of Christ in the Bible. So that tells us, I think, that it is an extremely important doctrine for us to know. But interestingly, there are many people, when it comes to this doctrine, when you start talking about what we call eschatological things, the eschatology, which is the doctrine of last things, that people don't think that it's really all that important. And so they don't care if you are amillenary or postmillenary or premillenary or perhaps panmillenary, which means it's all going to pan out in the end, so it doesn't matter. Um, it, it really, really, it's not that important to them. But I think that all Bible doctrines are important, and I think it's important that we know the truth of them. And if it's so important that the, that the Bible would talk about it 1,900 times, and it's second only to faith, then I believe that God wants us to know the truth of this. And as we've talked about, as we're, we're looking at this subject, world history is moving towards this point. In our study of the book of Revelation, we've moved through 18 chapters, more than 18 chapters that are all preliminaries to get us to this point, and that's when heaven opens and Jesus Christ the King comes out and he comes to reign upon the earth. Now, we're going to read about this once again. Uh, The subject is the King Returns in Revelation chapter 19, verse number 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, clean and white, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now we're spending some time on this subject because it is so important. And I want us to look very closely at these verses. And that's, that's why we're in, once again, one of these multi-part messages. And 
I'm still working on this, and, and I, as you all know, I'm, I'm usually a few weeks ahead in the messages in the study, and I, I have things planned out of what we're going to talk about, and I'm still working on this. About, I think I'm up to part number seven. I don't know when we're going to end it, but I think it's very, very important for us to look at. And if this is what we've been waiting for, and we pick up the Bible, and we start to begin or start reading in Genesis chapter 1, we get to that first reference in Genesis chapter 3.15 of the, of the second coming of Christ, and we keep reading about it, then surely it's important for us to spend time with it. We want to understand this, and we want to revel in the majesty of Christ's coming. Now, I want to give you the two previous points that we've talked about already. Uh, the first one was the anticipation of Christ's return. And the anticipation is the many verses in Scripture that refer to it. And one of those verses, or passages of Scripture, I should say, is in Isaiah chapter 9. This is one of my favorite ones. Uh, Gary read this for us in the candlelight service a few weeks ago. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And you notice there it begins with a child is born. And that is the first advent of Christ. Christ came into the world born as a human baby, human and God, God the God-man born into the world. But then all the rest of that that we've just read, all of that refers to the second coming. And God has promised that there would be uh, someone who sits on David's throne, that it would be an everlasting throne, and that hasn't yet been realized. It's been 2,500 years since someone sat on the throne of David, but God has promised that someone will, and this is the anticipation of that, that Christ is coming to do this. And the last king that will sit upon that throne is King Jesus. Matthew and Luke both give us genealogies of Christ, and they prove both his natural right and the legal right that Christ has to the throne of David. The second thing that we talked about was the appearance of Christ. In verse number 11, Jesus appears. John says, I saw heaven opened. And I pointed out that this is not the time of the rapture because when Christ comes at the rapture, he doesn't come to the earth. Instead, he meets his people in the air. The bodies of dead saints, those who have believed in Christ, those will be raised from the grave. And then those of us that are living, if we're living at the time that Christ comes, then our bodies will be translated, they'll be changed and will go up to meet Jesus in the air. And so he doesn't set foot on the earth at that time. Well, this is not that scene. When Christ appears at the rapture, the judgment and the kingdom of, of God upon this earth is not immediate. Seven years of tribulation come after that, and after the rapture. And, and there's this great falling away. The Antichrist is revealed. All of that ha has to happen first before we get to the part that we're talking about here in Revelation chapter 19. And this is when Christ comes to defeat the Antichrist, and he comes to establish his kingdom on the earth. And in Acts chapter 1... When Jesus left the world, uh, he departed from this earth after the resurrection. And the Bible tells us there that he went up from the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is on the east side of Jerusalem. Uh, it's about 200 feet higher than the city. 
And that's the point from which Jesus left the world. And from there, you have a beautiful panoramic view of Jerusalem. That's where he left the world. And the Bible also tells us that when he comes back and when he steps foot on this earth again, that is the place where he's going to come. So he left from the Mount of Olives, and the place that he comes back is to the Mount of Olives. Zechariah records in Zechariah 14, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the Mount of... The Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. Now, when that happens, there is not going to be a long siege of the earth. It's not going to be days and weeks and months uh, that it's going to take to root evil out of the world, but rather, when Christ comes in that, at that time, all of this happens suddenly. The armies of Christ come from heaven. The Antichrist and his armies have already been gathered there to Armageddon. The way has been prepared for the Lord to come. And then Jesus bursts forth out of heaven, and he comes with his armies of his people and of angels, and with just the spoken word, he consumes all of his enemies. And how that happens, I don't know. We're going to talk about that a little bit later when we get to the battle of Armageddon. But the bodies of all of these people that are in the armies of the Antichrist, somehow they split open, suddenly it's over, their blood flows out, and the Word of God says that a river of blood for 200 miles flows throughout Israel. And so all the world's armies are defeated. And then Christ begins to reign from David's throne. A magnificent new temple is constructed, and from that platform, there Jesus rules the world with a rod of iron. So that's what we've covered in the first couple of parts of this message. So let's go on to the next part. Uh, We're given certain descriptive phrases uh, about Jesus. We're told something here about his clothing. We we find something here about his attitude. And we're going to talk about those aspects in other parts of the message. But before we do that, we want to talk about the names that are given here of Jesus. So number three is the appellations of Christ. Appellatives are names, and names are very important in Scripture. If you were here some eight years ago now for the last sermon that Pastor Cregan preached from the pulpit, you heard a sermon in which he preached on the names of Christ. And he went through the Bible, and he listed all the names from A to Z that we find in Scripture that are uh, names that have been given to Jesus. Now, I'm not going to do that tonight, but, but there are names like Alpha and Omega, Bridegroom, the Prince of Peace, the Morning Star, uh, Shiloh, the Rose of Sharon, the Lily of the Valley, and on and on and you can go with many, many different names that are given to Jesus. Now, here in these scriptures, we have more names. Three of the names are given here that we know, and there's one name that we don't know. And we're going to talk about that one that we don't know first. And this is the mysterious name, his mysterious name. In verse number 12, it says, His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Now, John tells us that there is a name that's written, but it's writing that John can't understand. And this is one of those mysteries of the Bible that people just are not happy with. 
I mean, everybody wants answers to things, and uh, so you invariably get questions on this. What is the name that nobody knows but Jesus? And you ask me that question, I don't know the answer to that. But there are a lot of people that aren't satisfied with that because they believe that there are answers to everything. And so we ought to be able to figure out the name that nobody knows. But there are some things about the Bible that you simply can't answer. There are some things that only God knows. And there are people that aren't satisfied when you tell them things like, well, they ask God, explain to me all about the Trinity. I can't explain to you all about the Trinity. It's a concept that's far beyond our understanding. There's no way that we can describe it. It's a mystery. And the problem is, God is infinite and man is finite. Now, you can always put the finite inside the infinite, but you can't put the infinite inside the finite. We're finite, God's infinite, and so that means there are going to be some things about God that we simply can't understand. And we have to be content about this, that there's no way that we're going to find out about them. Now, I like what John MacArthur said one time. Uh, one time he was asked, where is heaven? And John MacArthur said, up. And somebody said, well, John, can you be a little, be a little bit more specific about that? And he said, yes, it's way up. <laughs> there's some things you can't answer. You can't know those. So I don't know the name. I don't know the name. But I can guess as to why I don't know it. Now, there are a parallel passage to this, possibly, might be Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Now, when I was preaching on this passage in our study of Philippians, we looked at this verse. And at that time, I suggested that the name that is above every name is the name Lord. If there is a name that we know that's above every other name, that's higher than any other name that's given to Christ, in our understanding it would have to be the name Lord. Now, I know it's not Jesus. There are many people that think, well, Jesus, and we have songs about that. Jesus is the sweetest name I know, and the name of Jesus is beautiful to us. But Jesus is not the name that's higher than any other name. And one of the reasons I know that is because there are many people that name their children Jesus. And different cultures, people name their children Jesus. And so you can't say, well, your kid has a better name than anybody else's name. If that was true, then all of us would name our kids Jesus. So I know we're not talking about that name. But we might be able to look at this in a different way. The name that is above every other name may be a name that we don't even know right now. And this is the name, possibly that we read about in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, could be uh, the name that Jesus wears on him when he comes to the earth and the name that John couldn't read. He, he is exalted. That's what uh, Philippians 2 says. Every knee is going to bow to him. Scripture says he's going to rule with a rod of iron. So it might be uh, the name that we find in Philippians. That's the name above every other name. And then it's also been suggested that this name could be a name that's shared with God the Father and that it's actually a name that refers to some aspect of Christ's divinity. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Now, there is a relationship that exists between the Father and the Son that no one really can explain that they know about. Now, in Scripture, we know that Jesus is the eternal Son. Now, how do you explain that? How could somebody be an eternal Son? 
How do you, how do you explain this in, 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 in the, the covenant that exists between the Father and the Son that, that came into being before the foundation of the world? This is buried somewhere in that doctrine of the Trinity. And, and it's things that we simply can't understand. Now, John saw it. There's a name written, but it's beyond his comprehension. And you know what's actually comforting about this? What if we could know everything there is to know about God? What if God was completely comprehensible? That would actually be terrible. Uh, I, don't, I don't want God to be someone that I know everything about because if I knew everything there was to know about him, that would bring God down to my level. Uh, if, if I understood everything about God completely, then I would start to second-guess him. And, and goodness knows, there are enough people, when we don't know enough about God, we can't explain everything about him, they still second-guess God. And I wonder, how do you do that? I mean, you, you don't know the end from the beginning. How, how are people going to say, and they say this sometimes, God's not fair. God hasn't treated me right. God, God did something to me, and it's just not right. How can you say that? You don't know the end from the beginning. Only God knows the end from the beginning. Let me read to you a comment that John Bunn made a few weeks ago. Most of you didn't know John Bunn is a great Bible scholar. And uh, I'm usually reading comments from commentary or something, but I have something from John Bunn that I thought was really insightful. And this was part of a question that uh, he had about Adam and Eve's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve thought it was better that they should have uh, the knowledge of good and evil. They thought it was better that they would know that, and God was trying to tell them, there are some things that you're better off not knowing. But here's what John said about it. He, w- he wrote this in, uh, in his question on Sunday morning for the forum. He said, we are to obey God even though we may not understand the consequences of disobeying him, that disobedience can lead to unforeseen circumstances that we are not even aware of, and that by trusting and obeying his commandments and submitting ourselves to his will, we can avoid heartaches created by sinful activities. And I thought that was a great comment. It's good advice. You don't know everything there is to know about God, and so you never question God's commandments. I'm content to say with Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So Christ has this mysterious name far beyond our comprehension. And maybe someday we'll understand it. When we get to heaven, maybe we'll understand it then. Or it could be there are going to be some things that God is never going to explain to us. Well, we look secondly at the meaning of his names. Christ's names cover the spectrum of his being, of his essence. And and so you have many descriptions that are given of Christ that describe his attributes. Names tell who a person is. Now, especially in Bible times, they would give people descriptive names. For instance, Adam is a descriptive name, a very simple name. Adam means man. So what better thing could you name man than man? Call him Adam. Call him man. Eve means the mother of all living. Abram had his name changed to Abraham because it means father of many. You may remember that when uh, Benjamin was born, not Petro, but Benjamin in the Bible. When, when Benjamin was born, Rachel called him Benoni, and that means son of my sorrow. But Rachel died in childbearing, and so Jacob changed his name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And he named him that because 
Benjamin was so dear to him, and that was the last son that he had. And similarly, the names that are given to Jesus are descriptive of him. For instance, Jesus means Savior. It means Jehovah saves. Well, here we have three names that are given to Christ. The first one that we see here is faithful and true. These are considered together in verse number 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Gary Uh, sings a song sometimes that has a line, My Redeemer is faithful and true. Everything he has said, he will do. And that's the thought that you find in this name. Christ is the one that you can always count on. He's always faithful because he has the ability to do everything he says that he will do. And that's not often the case with our leaders. You know, every four years, we get all kinds of promises from the presidential candidates. They tell us everything that they're going to do. And we listen to all that, and we just sort of yawn, and and we vote for them anyway because we know that both sides make promises they can never deliver on. And so the president gets elected, and there are going to be people that are are mad because Obama is not as far left as as he promised to be, if that's possible, but he's not as far left. And then we get a conservative president, and people say, well, he's not as far right as he needs to be. He's too moderate. We kicked Gray Davis out of office so we could get Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he promised that he was going to get California back on sound fiscal footing once again, and we've still got a big mess, bigger than ever before. And personally, I'm kind of glad that that Arnold's gone because when I write his name in my notes, I always have to look the doggone thing up to figure out how to spell it. So I'm glad he's gone anyway. But we don't have those kinds of problems with Jesus. He's faithful. And that's because he controls everything. You see, a president makes promises that he can't fulfill because he can't see into the future. He can't see what things will arise, what circumstances are. He doesn't know how much opposition he'll have from Congress. And so there are things he promises he can't do. But Jesus always delivers. He always does because he has wisdom always to do rightly and he has the power to do what he always says. Now, Christ is also faithful because as God, he is immutable. God's attribute of immutability means that he never changes. There is no purpose in God. That's not always been his purpose and will always remain his purpose. You never, there is no such thing as God changing his mind. God does not reverse course. Now, I do know that we find in Scripture there are times when it says that God repents. But that's really just an accommodation to our understanding. We see in time. God lives in eternity. And so when the Bible says that he repents, that's only a change from our viewpoint. That's not a change from God. Now, many people have difficulty with that, especially when you come to the doctrines like the doctrine of God's sovereignty, when you're talking about maybe election or predestination or something like that. But those doctrines just simply mean that God does what he intends to do. And, and salvation of any person is a result of what God intends to do. And so when you talk about predestination or election, that's simply a declaration of what God intended to do. Now, it's interesting that Scripture also says God cannot lie. Why can't God lie? Well, he's holy, he's wise, he's perfect, but there's no reason for God to lie. God doesn't need to be deceitful because God never gains an advantage by it. I mean, how can the supreme being be advantaged by anything? So God doesn't need to lie. There's no purpose in it. 
Now, I want us to turn here to a parallel passage. If, if you'll look over in Isaiah chapter 11, and uh, this is one of the many uh, scriptures that we have about the second coming of Christ. And chapter 11 is also a great chapter about the millennial kingdom. And here Isaiah begins by speaking of the king's attributes that guarantee his faithfulness. So if you look there in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse number 1, it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Now there we see two vital aspects of his faithfulness. Now on the one hand, he's faithful to rid the world of sin. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with his lips he will slay the wicked. And then on the other hand, he judges the poor in righteousness, and it says that he will not be governed by what others tell him. He shall not judge with the sight of his eyes, neither reprove with the hearing of his ears. And so we need both aspects of Christ's faithfulness. He, he judges the wicked, and if he doesn't do that, then righteousness can't reign. So we have to have the fulfillment of both these promises. The wicked will be judged, and the righteous will be blessed. Then the second part of his name here is true. He is true. And that doesn't mean that he tells the truth, which he does. We've already considered that under faithfulness. But the word true here actually has two shades of meaning. It means, first of all, that he's true as opposed to false. And the dynamic difference between the two is demonstrated right here in the book of Revelation. For instance, over in chapter 6, there is another rider on a white horse. Chapter 6, verse 1, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now there is the same description it looks like that we have in the 19th chapter. But here it's not talking about Jesus. Here is the Antichrist, and he's the counterfeiter. He makes a promise of, of peace and prosperity, but he can't deliver it. He's the counterfeiter. He's a false Christ. But Jesus is true. And so when it says he's true, that means that he is the real deal. He is the genuine article. And then the other meaning of the word true is that he's the perfect one. He is the perfect ruler. Now, sometimes we get good rulers. Uh, sometimes we may get a good president, but eight years is his limit. And we reward a good president by throwing him out of office after eight years. But with Jesus, that's impossible. He's the ideal ruler. He's perfect. And by virtue of his eternality, he's never going to be replaced. Well, moving on to the second of the three names. In verse 13, his name is also the Word of God. Now, there's no question about who we're talking about here. You can't confuse the rider on this horse. Now, there in the sixth chapter, that was the Antichrist. But when you get over here to chapter 19, you cannot confuse who this is. He's God, and he's God. It's explained 
this, this is how John explains the meaning of his name in another part of Scripture. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this rider on the horse is God. And the reason that Jesus is called the Word of God, because he is the declaration of God. Words tell us who God is, and Jesus declared God. In the 18th verse of chapter 1 in John, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So Jesus reveals God. Now, when Jesus came into the world the first time, he revealed the love and the compassion of God. For God so loved the world. So he was the revelation of God's salvation. But now, as he comes the second time, he's the revelation of God's wrath and of his judgment, of his holiness. He's the revelation of God's sovereignty because he's going to unseat all usurpers to his authority. So he is called the Word of God because when you see Jesus, you see God in action. When you hear his words, you hear God speaking. And we know who God is. We know what God does by looking at Jesus. He's the declaration of God. Then the third name in the passage is in verse number 16. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So that's the third name, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now you notice there in your King James Version that this is all in caps. And it's put that way for emphasis. You know when you get an email and it's all in caps, you know what that means, don't you? It means somebody's shouting at you. I want you to get this. And this is what the Bible is telling us here. We want, he wants you to get this. And when you see the first king and the first lord, those are superlatives. That means he stands out above all others. There is no king higher. There is no lord higher. He's supreme above all. Now, there is an interesting piece of information that I discovered. Uh, William Hendrickson mentions the contrast in this name and the name of the Antichrist. Uh, In chapter 13, you remember there that we learned... And every, I think everybody, this is about the only fact that everybody universally seems to know about the Antichrist, and that's his number, the number of his name, 666. And there's all kinds of speculation about 666. How do you figure out who the Antichrist is? And so they start assigning numerical values to letters in the alphabet and so on, and they add up this 666, and they come up with all different ideas of who the Antichrist is going to be. Well, Hendrickson... Uh, talks about another man that, that made a, a, a statement on figuring out the name King of Kings of Lord of Lords. And he says, compare also to Patrick W. Skehan, who contrasts the beast, whose number is 666, Revelation 13.8, with the numerical value of the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and calculates that the number is 777. He had to translate the title from Greek into Aramaic and delete the copulative and to arrive at this number. And so according to this man, the number of the beast is 666, and the number of Jesus, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, is 777. Now, I don't know. I, I, I kind of think that there's a problem with this, that God's not really trying to be cryptic about this. And 666, I don't even know if there's even any correspondence to that, to that number and, and, and how you could ever figure out who the Antichrist is. I don't think that there is. There is a name 
that no one knows. And that's the mysterious name. But this name is not mysterious. Paul has already called him this in 1 Timothy 6.15. John has already called him this in chapter 17, verse 14. So this is the declaration of his supreme authority. And you really have to be struck with all of these expressions that you find in Scripture that speak of the deity of Christ. And it's no wonder that the Apostle John says to us or teaches us that people like Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses that deny the deity of Jesus Christ, he says, are antichrist. First John 2, 2, he said, Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is antichrist. He denieth the Father and the Son. Do you remember when we talked about, some of you that come on Wednesday nights, we talked about that verse, how that uh, when, when this says that, that who is a liar but he that denieth Jesus is the Christ, that means everything that that name stands for, everything that the name Christ means. He's the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is God. And when you deny that he is very God, then you're an antichrist. So, John tells us here about these names, the Word of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But we have another part that I want to consider here, and that's in conjunction with this title that we have in verse 16. And the third part is the majesty of his name. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, once again, we're reminded in this of how far different that this coming is, the second coming of Christ is to the first coming of Christ. You remember when John the Baptist saw him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And when we get into Revelation, we also find that same name, that appellative. He is called the Lamb of God. But we also see in chapter 5 of Revelation that he is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. In the first advent, when Christ came, he was meek and lowly. Do you remember he, he rode into Jerusalem on that last week of his life? He came riding in on a donkey. Contrast that to what we read here. In Revelation, he burst out of heaven on a majestic steed. He comes on a white horse, and that is a symbol of of a conqueror. And then in that first advent, he was taken before Pilate into the judgment hall. And Luke 23 records this. And the whole multitude of them arose and led led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And we know the result of that. There wasn't any just cause why they should accuse him. He had no sin. But Pilate caved in to the will of the Jews, and so he ordered him to the cross. And above his head, there was placed a mocking title. And Pilate had that title put in Greek and Hebrew, Greek and Hebrew and in Latin. That was so the Hellenists could read it. It was so that the Romans could read it. It was so the Jews could read it. And what Pilate was doing was making a universal proclamation. Jesus is the king of the Jews. And that was a mocking universal proclamation. But in the second advent, it's different. He's the lion. He's the conqueror. Uh, The scripture says he has eyes that flame like fire. And he comes with another universal proclamation. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. And that means he's above all others. And so this would be saying to Pilate, yes, Pilate, he is the king of the Jews. But he's also king of the Gentiles. He's king of everybody. 
The song says, Name of all majesty, fathomless mystery, King of the ages by angels adored, power and authority, splendor and dignity, bowed to his mastery, Jesus is Lord. And so these are the appellations of Christ. He is faithful and true. He is the Word of God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Scripture says he's coming to reign. One day he's coming back to the earth and he's going to set his feet upon the Mount of Olives. And when he comes back, there will be this vast army of angels and armies of redeemed people. That will include you and me if you're a Christian. We're coming back with him and we are going to be the courtiers of the king. This is why we call it the apex of Revelation. This is the climax of the book. It's what it's all about. It's what the revelation is, the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes from heaven and comes to claim his people and take over this world. It's the revelation of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these great words that we've read in Scripture. We can't do justice to the names that are given here. We can't really explain the depths of the names that are given to Jesus. But Lord, help us to have it in our hearts to know without question what a, what a mighty king that Jesus is. I ask you, Lord, that, that you would speak to everyone's hearts here tonight, that if there's anyone here that's not saved, that they would recognize that who Jesus is and turn their hearts over to him completely, receive him as Lord and Savior tonight. And then for us as, as already believers who, who know you, I just ask you, Lord, that, that we would shout this message from the housetops. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is coming again, and people need to be prepared for it. They need to know who Jesus is. Bless us as we sing tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's